Hey everyone, just a little disclaimer before we start today's episode, you might notice that our sound sounds a little different. Emma, why is that? Well, there was this little hurricane named Ida, the bitch Ida. (laughs) She swept through our nation and ruined things. Oh no. (laughs) Yep, so basically both of our booths are completely screwed up and um, we've had to improvise. But we saved our microphones. Woo! And we are here. And we're here. Hey, we're here. We're here. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is Are These Books Drunk? Oh. I'm Brandy. I'm Emma. And our Mariana is officially on her maternity break. Yeah. We miss you, Em. I know. This is so strange to do this it's without so you. If you're listening on your maternity break. She definitely is. What are you talking about? You think so? She better be. <laughs> Mariana. <laughs> But this is still your book club with a twist, and we yeah. are still your happy hour girlfriends. Woo Yeah. This month, we're reading New York Times bestseller, The Devil in the White City, Ooh. Murder, Magic, and Madness, at the Fair that Changed America by Eric Larson. Though it is nonfiction, it tells in novelistic form the intertwining stories of the architects of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair and that of serial killer H.H. Holmes, who is said to have murdered between 27 and 200 people in his elaborate (laughs) murder castle. A little bit of a gap there. (laughs) Oh, right. It's also worth mentioning that Leonardo DiCaprio has been trying to bring this project to the screen since 2003, brought Martin Scorsese onto the project in 2015, and in 2019... Hulu announced that the project would be coming to their platform as a series. Ooh, I wonder if he'll play H.H. Holmes. He has to, right, with those blue eyes of his? With those blue eyes. Speaking of blue eyes, M's, Mm. I hope I don't have to worry that you'll slip me a Mickey in my cocktail today. (laughs) What are we drinking? The name of today's cocktail is also the name of a Limp Biscuit song. But for today's purposes, it's for the mysterious references in our reading this week. Today's cocktail pairing is called Behind Blue Eyes. Ooh. Yeah. Our world-renowned architect and serial killer keep getting mention of those piercing blue eyes. What is up with that? Yeah, good question. And since our Mariana is on a maternity break, screw the mocktails. Screw Ida. Oh, yeah, the mocktails. Totally. Got it. (laughs) it all! <laughs> Maybe we'll bring them back at some point, but for now, your luscious ladies are just serving up cocktails. Woo! Without further ado, here to share the recipe for Behind Blue Eyes is the bartender with piercing blue eyes. He does, in fact, have piercing blue eyes. Should we be he concerned, does. Brandy? Oh. Here's oh, no. Ricardo! <laughs> Woo! Ricardo! Should I be afraid? <laughs> yes. Ciao, Brandy. Welcome to the bar. Hi. How are just you? It's me today. I'm good. I just have no friends, I guess. I know. <laughs> Maybe, like, you need to ask yourself some question. 
You know? <laughs> Help me drown my sorrows, Ricardo, yeah. and my loneliness. I will do it. I will do it behind my blue eyes. Behind oh, my no. blue eyes. Yes. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> so the cocktail of today is Obu's. Obu's. Yes, it is. Yes. Oh, it's strong, huh? <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> to get this nice color, we need a little bit of blue curacao. And the rest of the ingredients are pretty easy. It's a twist on the Vesper, this cocktail. Uh-huh. And so we are going to make this martini with both gin and vodka. So Ooh, yummy. for the recipe, uh, we're going to need an ounce and a half of vodka, half of an ounce of gin. And because we're putting the blue curacao that is sweet and uh, with uh, orange notes, we need to use extra dry vermouth instead of the dry vermouth. Ooh, and okay. we're going to need just a quarter of an ounce. We shake and we strain up into our coupe or martini glass and we garnish the cocktail with a lemon twist. I really like this drink. It's helping me forget that I don't have any friends. Good, good. That's the purpose. <laughs> That's the purpose. <laughs> So it's very strong. I recently discovered a very interesting vodka that I would mm. recommend for all martinis variation. That oh, is, great. That is called Helix. And it's an Icelandic vodka. The very interesting thing about it is that they use just water from, of course, volcanic source because it's in Iceland. Whoa. So the texture of the, of the vodka itself is completely different from anything you've ever tasted. Oh, wow. It gives you a complete different texture and palate to the martinis that you're going to make with this vodka. And it's not expensive. It's easy to find. It's getting more and more popular. So I highly recommend to try the Helix vodka. Helix Vodka. All right, I'm going to look out for it. Yeah, very cool bottle too. And for the gin, no particular recommendation. I honestly think that a London dry style would work better than a more botanical one. But it's up to you. It's very up to you. Okay. Yeah, that's what I used and it's delicious. Good. So enjoy your behind blue eyes and alla vostra salute. Thank you. (laughs) Ciao, Brandy. Bye, Ricardo. Ciao. Bye. All right, woman. Cheers. I have never needed a drink so bad. I mean, I almost made a triple. <laughs> Woo. Yes. Oh, she's strong. She is, but I'm not mad about it today. Same. Not mm. mad about it. I mean, this might be bad to say, but somebody somebody could probably get me into a murder castle if they gave me a few of these. Oh, my God. Brandy. <laughs> hey, I've already been drinking. Okay. <laughs> Blame it on the alcohol. All right. <laughs> this week, we get some context for the conception of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, the 400-year anniversary of Columbus's supposed discovery of America. The idea for the World's Fair is devised in direct response to France's 1889 Exposition Universelle, a glamorous and exotic event which included the unveiling of the now-iconic Eiffel Tower and which drove a shot straight through the heart of American patriotism. Winning out over more obvious choices like New York and D.C., a burgeoning Chicago was tasked with the responsibility of creating an event that would eclipse anything the world had ever seen. 
and the gargantuan responsibility landed squarely on the shoulders of Chicago's two leading architects, Daniel Burnham and John Root. At the same time, a handsome and charismatic young doctor and con man, Herman Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes, had planted roots in Chicago, a city made more exciting to him because of its frenetic energy, which made it easy for people to disappear. Having purchased a plot of land near the future site of the fair, he set about custom-building a place that would enable him to satiate his peculiar desires— complete with what amounted to a crematorium in the basement. As Ooh. you do. You know, whatever, as you, some people the do. I'm, I'm so curious, Emma. You mentioned the piercing blue eyes that our two protagonists share, and I was wondering what, if anything, you made of the fact that this writer keeps, he does keep bringing that up. Well, It's so interesting because I felt in the last few years, too, that I've heard a lot of people make reference to, uh, like, in my acting classes, say, Uh or in, like, in studio, it's always the people with, like, really pretty blue eyes that have more of, like, charming faces. Interesting. That people say, oh, you would make, like, a really great (gasps) evil character. Like, you'd be a great comic because no one would suspect And it's weird because I've heard people, like, because I have blue eyes, and Mm -hmm. people have said that of me as well. Like, it would be really interesting if you played the bad guy because no one would expect that by the way you look. I don't know what it is about necessarily blue eyes because I think a lot, I can get lost in anyone's eyes. So I actually don't, I don't really know what the blue eye thing is. But so it's almost like there's a presumed innocence or something associated with. Yes, but also something like a little sinister, it seems. Like, I'm thinking back to American Horror Story, and there were several characters that have really blue eyes that played really terrible people. And so I've never actually thought about it, but now that you're asking me, I'm like, oh, yeah, there is a correlation. I don't know why. I also found it really interesting. We start out with this very interesting date that almost seems to portend disaster. It's the day before the Titanic sinks, and Burnham, the lead architect behind the World's Fair, is aboard the Olympic, which is a sister boat of the Mm -hmm. Titanic. And it's almost like he has this premonition. His friend Millet is on his mind, a friend who had been a part of building the World's Fair and who at that moment, it seems, is aboard a possibly already troubled Titanic, though we don't get far enough um, into that in these chapters. But we know that Burnham is trying to send him a telegram, and for whatever reason, it's being rejected. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also a hinting at the fact that Burnham's partner, Root, may have died early on. At least I took it to be Root. But the quote in the book is... I did too, yeah. Okay. The quote is, Burnham and Millet were among the few builders of the fair still alive. So many others had gone. Olmstead and Codman, McKim, Hunt, Atwood, mysteriously, and that initial loss, which Burnham still found difficult to comprehend. And I thought, that's got to be Root. Uh, yeah, but again, I thought we don't that get too. into it in these chapters. But it's interesting that he's setting this up immediately. Almost it feels like shit's going to go wrong. I mean, yeah. And it does. So right. I think like it makes sense to start from a place of like it just it was so much exposition at the beginning, which I understand it has oh, to be because it is historical nonfiction. So like you do have to set it up. So to mm-hmm. me, that makes sense that it's starting from a place of this isn't. And I guess if you bought the book, then you know, you know where it's going. So might right. as well just start with the the inevitable. 
Right. Wait, but do you know the story of the World's Fair? Like, do you know what's coming? Because I have no idea. No, but just from, like, reading okay. the the summary of the book. Right. But actually, it's an interesting question because I had never heard of the Chicago World's Fair. I had heard a lot about the Queen's World Fair. Yes. In, here in Flushing, Queens, New York. Because uh-huh. I did a play on those fairgrounds, like, oh, wow. several years ago. And so I was there, and so I did a lot of research because I was – where that took place, but I've never heard of the Chicago World's Fair, and my dad is from Chicago. Wow. And he's never talked about the World's Fair. But he knows of it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think. (laughs) Maybe not. I mean, it seems like some of these buildings must still be in existence and stuff, right? Like, these buildings aren't all just gone. Yeah, I mean, my dad knows a lot of the Chicago history, so I'm sure okay. he does. But sure it's interesting that it's never it's never come up. You know, it we've talked about up. the Great Fire in Chicago. Right. Yeah, you know, the Panic of 1873. We've never talked about the World's Fair. I'd also never heard of – I've never heard of Chicago references the White City. Like, it's always the Windy City. Uh-huh. And I thought that was interesting at the beginning how he talks about – how disgusting and dirty the city was. Yes. And that was interesting. You know, he makes reference, as you said, it was so easy to disappear because of the smoke and the darkness. And so I'm wondering where does the white then come in? Because so far we're just getting note of it being dark and grimy. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of mention, like kind of constant mention of like the filth and the stench and the slaughterhouse, which I guess Chicago was kind of a capital of, that at at this time um yeah it sounds terrible (laughs) it sounds horrible (laughs) yeah there's even mention of like dirtiness when it comes to morality almost too like there's there's Mm -hmm. mention of mickey finn the swindler who drugs his victims Mm -hmm. and steals all their shit um all of those violent deaths people killing each other in the streets right trains it seems like just killing people out on the streets. There's mention of, like, people picking up the decapitated heads. And then there's this creepy-ass Whitechapel club that, like, kind of comes and goes, which I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't remember that. I mean, it's literally a club where they're celebrating Jack the Ripper. And, like, oh, there's mention of them having right, right, the implements right, right, right. on the walls from, like, murders and skulls that they drink out. Like, right. It's just like, what is this city at this time? <laughs> yeah, because now Chicago, place? everyone's like, oh, Chicago's so clean and beautiful. That was my first impression of it. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I was just in Chicago. Oh, right. And we actually did an architecture tour, like a boat tour on the river. Oh, wow. Because Chicago is so well known for its architecture. And I don't remember anything in that tour about any of these buildings that we're learning about now. That is bizarre. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe they were mentioned, but I certainly right. don't remember anything that was attached to this history. Well, one thing that I was that I did learn in my in in some of my reading that I was doing outside of the book is mm. that um, the reason that they began calling it the White City at this time was because so many of the new buildings that were erected specifically for the World's Fair were white. And there were, I think, for oh. the first time, Edison bulbs illuminating oh. parts of the city in that area. So it just looked like a glowing, clean, you know, everything was brand new in that area. So it, this part of the city in particular looked 
like a white city. Oh, oh, that's cool. Speaking of the architecture, it's time for my question for you, B. (laughs) You snuck that in early. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. It's just two of us, okay? So, like, we're just going to whiz through. It's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) So, reading about all of the architectural achievements of Burnham Root and Olmsted, love Olmsted. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about him later, I think. Made me reminisce on that architectural tour that I was just saying I took in Chicago because of because so much of Chicago's history can be discovered through architecture, which I hadn't known before. And then I was thinking about some of my favorite architectural landmarks. So my question, not so personal, but do you have any favorite pieces of architecture? And if you do, like, why why those pieces? Why do they catch your eye? I really like this question because buildings are definitely like I love looking at buildings. You know, we live in New York, so we have we have so much interesting architecture around us all the time. But like, I'm not super like learned in architecture. Like, I don't know what I'm looking at. I Mm -mm. just can appreciate that it's beautiful or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are two buildings that come to mind from this question. From the moment I arrived in New York, the Empire State Building was like a point of pride for me. That I could exist in the same place as that building was just like miraculous to me. And I mean, I still kind of do it. But for sure, when I first got here, I used to check in with that building all the time. Like no matter where I was in the city, I would like look for the Empire State Building (laughs) and it would like help orient me. It was like your North Star. Yeah, kind of. That's so cute. And the, the even crazier thing is that, like, I used to, like, I'm not going to say I used to talk to it, but I definitely would, like, you look did. at it. You did. You definitely I, did. I kind of did. I used to, like, hey, look girl. at it and I'd be like, how am I ever going to be as tall as you are? Or, like, I would look oh. at it and I'd be like, you belong here, but I have to, like, earn my way to stay here. Like I don't know. Something about that building was just always, like, I can't believe I'm here and I get to look at you every day. Because and you had known about the building, like, from yeah. childhood, I guess, from Texas. Yeah, yeah. totally. Aww. You know, it's the, it's the building that you always see in movies associated with New York City. Right. And the even crazier thing is that now I live in an apartment in Queens where, like, every room in my house has a view of the Empire State Building. So I get to see it all the freaking time. And that is madness to Mm. me. So that's my first building. The second uh, building is the Lincoln Memorial, which always makes me emotional, even just, like, thinking about it. Because I was so used to seeing it on TV, like in speeches and, you know, in movies and stuff. So I didn't see it in person for the first time until I was an adult. And I hadn't realized from having seen it on TV how how kind of tucked away Abraham Lincoln is mm. in that building, like be, kind of protected behind those columns mm-hmm. and his giant words are surrounding him. And there's just something so fucking magical about that building and I I like literally I'm getting choked up right now even just Aww. thinking about it which is crazy to think that a building could like do that to Can you do that right it's pretty nuts yeah yeah the power of architecture right yeah yeah 
Well, similarly, I really, I'm not learned about architecture at all. I never studied, I mean, I, I barely remember like the different forms of columns, you know, like Ionic and Corinthian. Oh, you are you miles that? ahead like, of me, girl. Nope. Well, because I was interested in that, but I don't remember any of it. But I have three, and one of oh. mine is also, two of mine are actually New York ones, but mine is the Chrysler Building. Ah, uh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> It feels like it's like the Empire, the Empire State Building's like little sister. It's like people uh, always care more about the Empire State Building, but for me, when I see the Chrysler Building, I'm like, there she is. It's that that Art Deco for me. It's glamorous. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I remember when Ricardo and I were talking about engagement rings and just trying to get a sense of like my style. I kept referencing Art Deco, and I would be like, you like the Chrysler building. And he was like, so you want an engagement ring like the fucking Chrysler building? Like, he <laughs> d- it didn't make any sense to him. But for me, it was like Art Deco, you know? It's like, it's a style. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of mine. The other New York building that I just love every time I see it that kind of takes my breath away is the Metropolitan Opera. But oh. it's, the, it's that whole Lincoln Center facade with the fountain yeah. in front of it and then that stunning chandelier and the lobby yeah. that whole area every time i see it just makes me pause and go oh hey but the met i think is really really special and then the third is actually in barcelona la oh. sagrada familia oh yes which is a completely different style that's gothic architecture which i didn't even yeah. think i was interested in i didn't know anything about it but being on the outside and also on the inside, there was just something – there was something different about it. It did something to me differently, viscerally, than a mm. lot of other architecture that I've seen. Wow. And then when I, lear- when I learned that the structures on the inside were modeled after upside-down tree trunks – then I started to look at it as modeled after nature, and I think that kind of like clicked and did something mm. to me. It was just – it's just stunning, and the colors that come through the windows, it's just brilliant. And it was it was even under construction. There was scaffolding around, and even with oh, the wow. scaffolding, I was still like really moved by it. But architecture and then espe- – and especially landscape architecture, I think. It's amazing how you can feel something from that. Yeah, Totally. Which kind of maybe shouldn't be a surprise because like when I'm in a when I'm inside of a place like an apartment or, you know, wherever, some places feel good to be inside. You know what I mean? Depending yeah. on what the light is like or the windows or the ceiling height. Like I, I definitely had been aware of that before that mm-hmm. a place could affect you, but not to the extent that like, you know, like what you're saying about the Sagrada Familia, like it elicits almost like a grand emotional yeah. response in a way that like like i was saying earlier i get choked up when i see the lincoln memorial like i mm. i physically get choked up which is it's just crazy that a building can do that well and it's amazing that i mean it's also cool to think that you can feel that way just from it from a visual p- perspective but then also places and buildings can you can attach so much memory to them just from Mm -hmm. your experiences there you know like when I go to Rittenhouse Square Park in Philadelphia I feel something and it's not necessarily because of what it looks like although it's gorgeous but it's that was such a a landmark for me in my four years Mm -hmm. of college and so now that 
place has meant something so special to me. Yeah. It's interesting. This conversation is kind of making me want to pivot a little bit to talk about the architecture that was described in H.H. Holmes' murder castle because – and I, I hadn't even thought about it until we were actually having this conversation, but there is mention made of how kind of confusing the layout is and how uncomfortable it is and how there are hallways that end in nothing and doors that lead to nothing and stuff. So, which is fully what he was intending. It's almost like he was intending a building that would make you uncomfortable or like afraid upon entering it. Which doesn't very do very well for your case in point of wanting someone to come inside and want to stay inside. It's a little uh, doesn't really make sense there, Holmes. I yeah, I I'm pretty confused about that, and I hope that that gets clarified a little bit because it does sound like there are people who stay there for like periods of time. Like well, it doesn't he turns sound it into a hotel, right? Once he finds out the right. fair is being built there. And it also sounds like he has some employees that he houses there from time to time for, you know, longer than an evening. Yeah. Mm. So it is pretty weird that people would elect to remain in a place that felt that creepy. Well, like in Mexican Gothic, what's her face? I mean, that's different because she had family member that was inside. So it made her want to stay. But she felt how creepy. That's a throwback. (laughs) It's a throwback, yeah. She stayed in that creepy ass She did. She stayed there. It actually made me think of, did you ever see the movie The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? No. I read the book, and then when I oh, heard so how know. that scene was portrayed, I was like, I don't think okay. I need to see so it. Then, oh, yeah. It's it's a difficult movie, and I'm not going to give anything away. But in in the movie, I don't know if it's the same in the book, the villain finally gets his victim into essentially his version of Holmes's you know, murder basement. And this is what he says to his victim. He says, let me ask you something. Why don't people trust their instincts? They sense something is wrong. Someone is walking too close behind them. You knew something was wrong, but you came back into the house. Did I force you? Did I drag you in? No. All I had to do was offer you a drink. It's hard to believe that the fear of offending can be stronger than the fear of pain. But you know what? It is. And they always come willingly. And they sit there. They know it's all over, just like you do, but somehow they still think they have a chance. (gasps) That is terrifying. But it also is exactly what happens Mm. with the uncle, with his his wife's, with H.H. Holmes's wife's uncle who comes to the hotel to see it. Mm -hmm. You know, when Holmes asks him to, and Holmes asks him up to the roof, he says, absolutely not, because he's Mm -hmm. already feeling weird about the situation. But then Holmes says, stay at the hotel for the night. And the uncle feels like, I've already said no to the roof. I don't want to be rude. So sure, I'll stay the night at the hotel. And he almost gets fucking killed. Well, I mean, it's so fucking creepy to think about it from a woman's perspective, too, though. When oh, you think, I mean, as soon as you God. said those words, how did you, how did they phrase it? A fear of, um, the fear of offending. It's hard to believe that of the fear offending. of offending can be stronger than the fear of pain. That is and a it's very so terrifying 
powerful, truthful sentence. Yeah, for yeah. women especially, I think, that fear and of especially, offending. Emma, we feel that way in this day and age. Imagine mm. in 1880-whatever Chicago where oh. we, we find out at the beginning of this book, like women are sort of very newly becoming independent mm-hmm. and free to sort of move about on their own. The fact that Holmes was able to charge Clara, his wife, with infidelity so that he could be with someone else. I mean, sadly, actually, that would fly here in certain countries, too, which is disgusting. But True. I also was wondering, since we're talking about Holmes's house, did you get the sense that he killed Mrs. Holton, the widow of the pharmacy? Yeah. Right? Definitely. Oh, yikes. And it sounds like he's got several women who work for him who he kills. And I mean, the fact that the fact that there's such a huge gap in what was it? 20 between 29 and 200 people that he possibly murdered. Like that is astounding. (laughs) It's a staggering number. It sounds like he was really just free to do whatever the hell he wanted. And nobody literally nobody knew what was going on. I feel kind of sad that I'm realizing that most of the notes that I took about this and most of the conversation I want to have is about Holmes because that storyline is almost like a little more exciting to me than the architecture. I know. And that's so – actually, I'm sure you knew this, but the number one trending podcast genre is crime and yeah. murder. Yeah. But it's so sad that out of these two – historical men like that's the one that I want to talk about (laughs) and that's the one that I assume like you know when you said Leonardo DiCaprio is is working on a series Mm -hmm. version of this I just assumed he's probably playing Holmes because that's the quote-unquote more interesting interesting. character well I feel kind of bad but I have a question (laughs) right in this vein oh uh uh-huh So I agree with you that our culture has an unsettling curiosity with murder and serial killers. Mm. It's an unsavory question, but I want to know who's your favorite serial killer. And by that I mean, by that I mean, which serial killer story haunts you the most, is the most memorable to you, is the creepiest, scariest, and why? Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, I have several people that come to mind. Oh, wow. Because I, too, got stuck on the trend yeah. of the serial killer. Oh, for sure. And so there are several that have stuck with me. The first one that comes to mind is Ted Bundy because I watched the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix. Oof. And did you see it? Nope. nope. Really? Nope. You can't do it. It's too scary. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fucking terrifying. I had heard his name dropped before, but I hadn't I didn't know the details of mm. that. So that's the first one that came to mind. And Ted Bundy specifically was murdering women. Women. Okay. Mm-hmm. And presumably doing other Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um then the podcast serial is based on Ronald Lee Moore, who is the killer of Hyman Lee. Did you listen to that? You listened to Serial, right? The podcast? Yeah. About Adnan Syed, who was yeah, the man yeah, that yeah. was wrongfully convicted? Right. Why do you look confused? Do I have it wrong about who the killer was? 
I didn't realize there was. I mean, I was a. St- I Adnan was arrested and imprisoned for it. I didn't realize that there had been like an exoneration. I thought that they. I thought that they realized that the killer was someone named Ronald Lee Moore. Let me. Okay. Let me follow up right. on that. Let know, me circle so back to that. Let me circle back to that then because I, I want to be sure that I'm correct. But that that story was so haunting to me, um, like the whole – that whole series. And then Luke Magnata – Magnata of oh, Don't Fuck With Cats. Yes. That one oh. was fascinating and oh. disgusting. Disgusting. And so much worse because he was harming animals. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was terrible what he was doing to humans too, but like – uh, and then recently I started listening. I'm only halfway through. I've been listening to a podcast called Dr. Death that my friend just told me about. Oh. Have you heard of it? There's a series now There's too, There's a series right? which I haven't, I haven't listened seen. or watched, so I don't really know what it's about. This one may be actually one of the more terrifying ones to me because he's a surgeon who specializes in spinal reconstruction. Oh, my God. And I actually can't understand if he's killing people on purpose or if he's just so bad at what he does that he is killing people and paralyzing people forever. Oh, but my there God. Is a quote, because I haven't finished it. But so he's, he's the surgeon who is – people are coming into him needing s- surgery, sometimes pretty minor, something that should be a super easy fix, and he completely botches them up and either on kills purpose. them. Well, that's what – that's what I'm not clear on. There was in the last episode I listened to, there was a quote that was that was uh he had insinuated to someone that he was looking to kill. So I think maybe it is on purpose, but it from getting his background from him in medical school, he was just a really bad student. He, he just was failing at everything, but somehow passed and somehow like passed his medical boards, which oh is fucking God. terrifying. And he's performing surgeries in hospitals. It's terrifying because that to me is like that could happen to anyone. Like that could be, yeah. you know, you go in to get saved and then yeah. you die for absolutely no reason. Right. So that's really fucking haunting. Or end up paralyzed for absolutely no reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're just like this person's plaything. Plaything. That's that's a good way to put it. Who's your favorite serial killer? (laughs) The one that creeps me out the most is the Zodiac killer. Mostly because – well – I won't say mostly because it's very creepy to me that he was never caught and like just evaded the police forever. And it's also super creepy to me that it seems like in all of the story, he was very theatrical, you know, like in all of the the killings that he did, he was either wearing some elaborate mask and like creeps up on those people at that lake or he was threatening to blow up a bus full of children <gasps> Or, you know, just, like, attention-seeking. I actually don't seeking. know. I don't know the details. I Like, I heard of the Zodiac Killer, but I don't think <gasps> I've ever – I don't know any details. There's a great movie with Mark Ruffalo. Oh. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal. But it's super cre- – I mean, it's a movie that, like, you won't sleep after. It's so creepy. And, I mean, the whole thing <laughs> about the Zodiac is that he was he was killing people and then writing letters to the police – Basically, like, saying, hi, I'm the Zodiac. This is what I've done. 
And then he would send these ciphers that if they could break, they would supposedly if they could break or figure out, they could figure out what his next crime was going to be, what his next murder was going to be. So anyway, that's what I mean by his theatricality. And it just seems like it was he just needed so much attention Mm -hmm. and seemed to really get off on people fearing him. Ted Bundy was the same. And I think that's what's so scary is like it's so psychological. Yeah, yeah. It's a game, and that's the most – I think that's the scariest. Yeah, I agree with you because it's not like – well, because you can't – A, you can't reason with somebody like that, and B, similar to Holmes, a lot of these people are described as being so charming and normal, you know, regular people who you would never guess this of, and so you trust them. And then you end up fucking horrifically murdered, which is just, you know, terrifying, obviously. Well, where to go from here, Brandy? Well, architecture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, how about Olm's offering for his worker to drop a rock on his brother-in-law's head to kill him for 50 bucks? (laughs) One little thing that kind of I'm I'm curious about, and I hope we get more about it in the book, and I'm not sure if it'll pan out or not, but did you get any sense that Root and Burnham might be lovers in oh. secret? No. There was just this one brief little mention of Burnham when they very first meet, admiring Root's White skin, this is a quote, white skin and muscular arms, his stance at the drafting table. And then it says something about the partnership with Root bolstered Burnham. It filled an absence and played to both men's strengths. And I wondered, were these men secretly like in love with each other? I I don't know. Something about that just. Hmm. I didn't clock that. I mean, that would be interesting, but I, I didn't clock that. And also they're partners, so obviously they work in really close proximity to each other. I mean, we do find out in these chapters, I think, that Burnham got married. I'm not sure if Root is married, but... It would be an interesting twist. Yeah, I'm kind of... But I'm didn't kind Burnham... Of, Burnham had, like, five kids, right? Yeah, probably. At this I think time. they, like, built another house for their kids. I feel like I remember reading that. Right. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. You can still be gay and have five kids. Totally. <laughs> Totally. I don't know. That was just something that I kind of like latched onto and I was like, oh, I kind of hope this be an interesting twist. One last little thing. I oh. feel like I'm always the one who keeps seeing like one last little yeah, thing. Yeah, bring it. I want to talk about this big ass Ferris wheel because <laughs> I might be completely crazy, but I think like any Ferris wheel that I've been on <laughs> is like I don't know, maybe like 60 feet tall or something. This Ferris wheel at the Chicago World's Fair is 200 feet tall. Terrifying. It's almost three times the height. Three times the height of a normal Ferris wheel, which, yeah, that sounds terrifying. And the seats, it said, held up to 60 people. 60 people. I don't when remember I'm in that. On a Ferris wheel... There's maybe room for three people, three, four maybe, people, yeah. 60 people, it said. <sighs> Jesus. Well, which was like, what the Why? hell? 
Why? And it also, you know, in the book, it's it's mentioned a few times that the guy who built this Ferris wheel was kind of being ridiculed by all the other architects who were like, you're an idiot. This thing isn't going to stand on its own. Like, what the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> um, which to me, like, yeah, that would probably be my reaction, too, if you're talking about building a 200-foot wheel that carries, like, you know, I don't know what 60 times. Yeah, like, how many, right. Is that, that like 600, awful. 700 people at one time? Oof. That's freaking nuts. Yeah, why did why did they make this fair so epic? Was it did they really need it? I guess we should have asked this question in the very beginning of the book, but were they making this fair this iconic because the city was in such bad economic position that like they needed to bring in the tourism for money? Like why why did it need to be this scale? I think at least the way Eric Larson seems to be framing it, I think it's just in direct response to France putting right, everyone else, Eiffel including <laughs> us, to shame. Yeah. And I right, think right, right. I think our Titans over here were pretty pissed off about that. Um and <laughs> we're like, we can fucking do that. Like you've got a you've got a really beautiful, cool architectural structure. Like we'll bring a fucking Ferris wheel. And the funny thing about this Ferris wheel too is like, <laughs> I just think it's ridiculous. The Eiffel Tower is so gorgeous, and right. then we were like, "Well, we've got a big thing too, and you can take a ride on it." So, <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, was it meant to be permanent, or was it just supposed to be something in passing? The Ferris wheel, yeah, like the fair in general. Oh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think it was meant to be a display of, like, our scientific and artistic and technological but temporary. prowess. I think like, so, Like, I don't although, know of any fair that was built to be a permanent, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but it does seem like, you know, if you're building architectural, like, these are buildings. Like, you're not going to demolish the buildings, right? Well, it's like a whole city. Right. Yeah. But, like, he's bringing in architects also to, like, build buildings for this thing. That's why I'm like, so where is it now? I mean, I guess we just have to finish the book and find right. out. Right. Well, I do know that the Ferris wheel stuck around for, like, 10 years after. Yeah, and but look how long the Eiffel Tower has been around. Yeah, girl, but. That's why like, I'm like. It doesn't turn, okay? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it doesn't do this, you know? It doesn't go in a circle. It's a great backdrop for engagement photos, but it <laughs> does not take you on a joy but ride. you cannot take a ride <laughs> on it. <laughs> I think that Ferris wheel stuck around for a long time, and they even moved it places. And then they eventually were like, mm, this thing's old. Like, <laughs> we got to. We got to put it out to pasture. <laughs> and then they had a stockyard for that. So it all worked out. <laughs> well, we'll just have to wait and see what happens in part two next week. I'm actually pretty excited about finding out who dies. I mean, I'm I'm pretty yeah, – it's terrible. It's exactly what you said. I, I want to know more about this murder castle. From some of the murder stuff I was castle reading. kills me every time you say it. This murder mansion. It's like Barbie castle, but murder castles. Every, that's I mean, what that's I what see. it seems like. It seems like it was a theme park for a serial killer. I was doing <laughs> some reading, and I'm curious if we're going to find out more details about this, but I was reading that there was a shoot that went from his room directly to the basement. 
I was reading that one of the rooms was outfitted like a gas chamber that he could control from his room. I was reading that one of the rooms had five doors that went nowhere. So like literally you'd be staying in that room, you'd open up a door and there would be nothing there. Like how do you react when you open a door and there's nothing there and there's five of those in a room? Terrifying. I was reading that there had peepholes in all the rooms, like just crazy, crazy, yeah, it's crazy, like a fun crazy house. shit. Yeah. Murder fun house. And people like lived there, I think, some of them for some period. It's just, it's madness. It's madness. Well, Brandy, I have a final question for you. Please tell me. If you were designing your dream home from the ground up, working with an architect to achieve whatever your heart desired. Oh, my. What's one key design aspect or function that you would definitely want in your home? <laughs> a la a custom-made incinerator in your basement for dead bodies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, mine is ridiculous. Oh. The, the first thing that came to mind is I would want – you know, one of those secret rooms that opens up like from behind a bookcase uh-huh. or something. So I'd pull a book, it would open up, and I would walk in, and that song would automatically play that like bum 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 and on a turn like a massive turntable in the middle of the room, my self-tape setup would turn on a turntable and like all of the lights would slowly come up and that song would be playing and I'd walk in like fuck yeah about to put this on tape (laughs) it'd be the most epic self-tape setup the world has ever known that's so (laughs) I love that it comes with a song to amp you up mentally (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Your Rocky song. song to Rocky. Yeah, whatever. Just need something blasting as I walk in. That is so funny. <laughs> but practical, too. I thought so. Yeah. Well, mine is very not that. <laughs> mine is a high-end self-massaging bed. Oh, In a my sun-filled God. room full of plants. Like a tropical oasis that massages my whole body. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that says something um, about where I am in my life right now. It's a little hot. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely don't want that song playing when I come in. (laughs) 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 All right, y'all. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have an insight or a question you'd like us to discuss on an episode, hey, shoot us an email at arethesebooksdrunk at gmail.com for a chance to be featured on our listener question segment. And you know what? what? If you love us, why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know? Yeah. We want to shout you out and tell you we love you too. Yeah. Like our new follower at Book Junkie and Heels. Thank you for your support. We're so excited that you're joining us for our happy hour. And we love reading your comments. Yes. Love that name, Book Junkie and Heels. It's so cute. Next week, we'll be reading to the end of the chapter entitled The Cold-Blooded Fact. Or page 197 in the hard copy of the book. Stay tuned on our Instagram page at Are These Books Drunk to find out next week's cocktail pairing. 
fuck the mocktails so that you can read along and sip along with us. Because it's always happy hour here. Oh, ciao, Brandy. <laughs> Saddest goodbye ever. <laughs> we need my self tape backgrounds theme song. <laughs> 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 <laughs>